Hello and welcome back. This is episode five of the FrameLab podcast. Hey, George. Hi, Gil. How are you doing today? I am fine. Great. Well, we have a kind of a special treat today for our listeners, um, which is uh, an episode here that's all question and answer. And so we solicited questions from your readers and listeners on Facebook and Twitter. And we have a pretty good collection here today. And we're going to try to get through as many of them as we can in about 45 minutes and maybe leave some for another time. Um, so are you up for up for some Q&A here? I love it. It's just like teaching a class. Great. So our first question comes from Gil Duran in Oakland. Oh, wait, that's me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the benefits of being the FrameLab co-host is that I get to ask the first question here. So this one came to me, George, while I was reviewing moral politics uh, last night. And I think it's, it's pretty relevant, which is conservative Republicans impeached Bill Clinton over his affair with Monica Lewinsky, and they made it the nation's central political question for quite a while. Uh, you wrote about this at length in Moral Politics and the reasons why this mattered so much to Republicans and why it offended their their moral hierarchy. Yet, when it comes to Donald Trump's sexual affair with a porn star, Stormy Daniels, and who knows who else, the reaction from conservatives has been very, very different. So I guess my question is, why do conservative Republicans apply one standard to Bill Clinton's sexual misconduct, but another standard entirely to Donald Trump's? Uh, the answer is relatively straightforward, uh, and it's in moral politics, actually. Uh, with Clinton, uh, the conservatives saw him as betraying the family, his own family and families in general. He can't have the president you know, betraying the family. Uh, and just as in strict father morality, uh, the father can't betray the family. That's part of the deal. However, uh, in conservative politics, you have a strict father hierarchy, as we've seen. But there is something that is above any particular thing in the hierarchy. That is, the most important principle is to defend uh, strict father morality itself, the very idea of what it means to be a conservative. And that's what's going on here. Uh, with respect to uh, Trump, Trump is uh, perfect for conservatives. He is giving the Republican conservatives everything they wanted. Uh, Reince Priebus uh, said that uh, Paul Ryan is, is getting all of his dreams uh, you know, carried out uh, since he, um, you know, um, uh, read about conservatism and became a conservative. And I think that's right. Uh, basically, for conservatives, as long as you're preserving conservatism itself, you can, uh, you know, look over the uh, smaller peccadilloes. So in this case, as long as they're going to get the Supreme Court justices they want who will outlaw um, reproductive choice at some point, as long as they get the constant unwavering support for fossil fuels and for guns, they don't care what he does. 
exactly. Um, think about uh, the um, religious conservatives. You know, how do religious conservatives uh, square his treatment of women and uh, his affairs and so on? Well, they may not like that, but he's given them Neil Gorsuch. The, there is some evidence that some evangelical women are abandoning Trump. There was a story about that recently in the New York Times. Um, so I guess there are some, you know, explain to me a little bit, how does Trump work with evangelical Christianity? And are there biconceptuals in evangelical Christianity who might say, enough is enough, and I'm not going to support this guy because he's clearly not reflective of my values? Uh, there are different versions of evangelical Christianity. Uh, the right-wing evangelicals have a view of God as a strict father. You know, you uh, uh, obey my commandments, you go to heaven, you don't, you go to hell for all eternity. Uh, you can't get stricter than that. Uh, that is the view uh, of um, the, the right-wing, the hard right-wing evangelicals about God. And then all the rest falls in line. Uh, however, uh, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical of a very different kind. Uh, evangelical means you're out there, you know, converting people. And Jimmy Carter had a different view of, Christi of evangelical Christianity. He was out there converting people while he was building houses for, uh, you know, uh, good church-going families who were working hard and didn't have money to, to get a house, so he was helping them build houses physically by himself uh, on the lines with other people building houses. He still is in his 90s. Right? Yeah, he's out there doing it. Uh, it's a different version uh, of uh, evangelical Christianity, and it focuses uh, a lot on uh, in-group nurturance. On uh, You have your group, which is your church, and uh, you help the people in your church. And it's really it's care and, and nurturance for that within your in-group. And the church and evangelical churches can have pretty large in-groups. And as long as Trump is in the conservative in-group, they're willing to forgive him. It's not just that he's in the conservative in-group. He defines what it is to have a strict father God. Mm -hmm. uh, he defines the whole idea behind it, and that's what's important. All right, we'll move on to another question here. This one is from Tim Nichols. Tim asks... What are the current big gaping holes in progressive discourse? What are the things we're not talking about but should be that will help shift attention to where we need it and activate progressive value frames? Uh, there are two very simple things which have a general consequence. The first is the idea that in a democracy you have a government of, by, and for the people. And that for the people means that it is the responsibility of the government to take care of its citizens which is exactly the opposite of what conservatives say. Conservatives say you're on your own. Take care of yourself. That's individual responsibility, not the responsibility of all of us, our government, to take care of its citizens. The second is the idea that the private depends on the public, that because we care about each other, we work through the government and pay our taxes to provide public resources for everybody, both people in business and uh, yeah, in private enterprise and in private life, from public education and public health to, uh, you know, um, courts and the uh, justice system and so on. Uh, the justice system is uh, nine-tenths for corporate law. Uh, and this happened from the beginning of our country. 
the country was set up so that businesses could thrive. Uh, you had not just public education, but uh, a patent office for, for business. You had interstate commerce for business, roads and bridges, so that you could get your goods to market. Uh, and again, uh, a court system largely for, um, uh, for corporate law. Now, again, this has been there from the beginning, and since then, uh, what the government has provided is science and technology, which is necessary for business. Uh, one of the stories that came out recently was that uh, Trump had ordered the um, uh, National Institutes of Health to have their budgets cut. And the drug companies screamed bloody murder. Why? Because the National Institutes of Health does the research on which all the drugs get go. You know, the drugs can be patented, uh, and they, they patent stuff done by government researchers uh, for their major drugs. And by cutting the NIH, they were cutting off the possibility of drug companies getting new drugs that they could make fortunes on. Do a second point there? Yes. So we have that one. The, um, the, uh, and the, both of these, that the private depends on the public and uh, government of, by, and for the people. And that entails what Robert Reich has called the common good. What is good for everybody? And what Reich does in his book, The Common Good, is something important, uh, sort of a baseline for understanding government. He says, look at the difference between me first, uh, you know, doing things for yourself, benefiting yourself above others, uh, rather than doing work for the common good. And he points out in all sorts of cases of this that the me first principle goes against democracy, against the very idea of America, against what uh, we have grown up uh, to expect of our country. And this is uh, an extremely important idea. And that's what all of these things are. That is, when you say government for the people, that's for the common good. When you say that the private and private life and private enterprise depend on the public, you're saying it's for the common good. So uh, those are, uh, that's the major consequence of all of this. Uh, Reich got it right, uh, and uh, these are principles that carry that out. Mm -hmm. So those, those big frames are sort of missing. It's not the case that Democrats are overtly making in the way that Republicans are always making their case for their moral worldview. Is that the, uh, the case we need to make, the frame that needs to be introduced and, and constantly repeated, is that the private depends on the public and that democratic policies and policies of democracy are those which best serve the common good. Would you say that's accurate? That, that's correct. And, uh, and the government of, by, and for the people. Those ideas need to be said. And although every Democrat believes them, I've never met a Democrat who didn't believe these things, but they, they may believe it, they don't say it. And uh, may, they may not even know that these are principles that unconsciously, uh, implicitly lie behind all the particular policies that they have. If you take a look at democratic policies, they all fit these principles. And uh, it's important that you say what your principles are. The Democrats don't come out and give uh, say what it means to be a Democrat. 
you know, and if you ask them, well, they'll, they'll give you policy answers. Well, we're for Social Security or we're for education or some policy or other, rather than the general principle that lies behind it all, the common good, which has to do with government for the people, and uh, the idea that uh, the private depends on public resources. The next question is from Leticia Salorenzo. Uh, the framing theory, is it always black and white? Is there no room for shades of gray between two ideas? Um, I've talked a lot, and we on these broadcasts have talked a lot, about what I've called biconceptualism. Uh, the idea, for example, that a moderate, uh, doesn't, there is no ide ideology of the moderate that all moderates believe, a moderate conservative, has some progressive principles, a moderate progressive has some conservative principles. And it's important to understand the neuroscience behind this because progressive and conservative thought are contradictory. So how can you have contradictory modes of thought in the same brain? The answer is very simple and it's there in, in basic neuroscience. There are circuitry, circuits called mutual inhibition. The activation of one turns the other off. Uh, this happens in every muscle in your body. You take your arm, your flexor muscle, uh, when that gets tensed and you make a muscle uh, in, your, uh, in your arm, the extensor underneath it gets, gets relaxed. If you want to hit backwards and tense your flexor muscle, your extensor, your extensor muscle, your flexor muscle has to relax. That is, mutual inhibition is happening not only in those muscles but between every pair of muscles in your body. Every time you blink or uh, move your mouth or uh, shrug your shoulders, all of those things are, involve mutual inhibition circuitry. And that circuitry is in your brain as well. Now, this is very important because people who are biconceptual, who are mostly conservative but partly progressive, mostly progressive but partly conservative, uh, there's no middle. There's no gray area that is neutral between them. It's not a gray area. It is a divide between them, and that in certain issues, they're one, and in other issues, they're the other. But they are using different moral bases for those particular issues. They're shifting you know, uh, unconsciously from one to the other, just as every time you move your arm, you're shifting unconsciously between uh, whether you're flexing your flexor or, uh, or uh, relaxing your flexor. So these are the, the swing voters that everyone's always trying to reach. Is that who these people would be? And you're trying to activate the progressive part of their brain and understanding that on some issues they're going to be conservative. Is And so she's asking, is it all black and white? Is there any gray? Is it correct to, to, to describe the biconceptual thinking as that gray no, area? It is not gray. There is no ideology that's in between. There's no ideology that just fits all moderates. Uh, what you have in each case is uh, either a progressive or a conservative ideology, but applied to different issues and shifting back and forth. And most people are like this. Most people uh, have some parts of their lives, most progressives are uh, conservative about some issues or other. Most conservatives uh, are progressive, that is, nurturant about some issues or other. We've talked about in-group nurturance, 
with where people in conservative communities care about the people in the communities and act as if they were progressives, but just for the people in their communities. Is there something that you're conservative about? Absolutely. Uh, I was a professor for 50 years before I retired, and uh, I was conservative about uh, a, a very special thing. Uh, in conservatism, the idea is that your fate is determined by you. You are responsible for what happens to you. In, in, that, in conservatism, that's true of, for everything. But uh, in my teaching, I didn't apply it to everything. I applied it to one thing, your homework. Do your homework. You do your homework, you'll get a good grade. You don't do your homework, you won't. No in between. No in between. We didn't get, you know, the people who the people who didn't do their homework just didn't get good grades. Sometimes they complained. They thought they were just good people and should get good grades. But sorry, you didn't do that reading. You didn't do that homework. You didn't get good grades. Well, I'm glad I never had you as a professor. I, I was not a homework doer, but I usually did well in the tests. Um, we'll go now to a question from Nancy Lynn Baker. Uh, Nancy asks, she says, my biggest frustration right now is that Congress will do nothing to check the actions of this president. That's their job. How do I or we address this in a way that effectively lets Congress know we understand that this is largely their fault? There is no such thing as Congress as one thing. Congress right, right now is run by the Republican Party. You vote the Republican Party out of office, replace them with Democrats, it will be act very differently, and that's what you have to do. If you want Congress to be responsive to uh, dealing with uh, all the horrors that uh, this presidency has unleashed, you absolutely must vote them out of office. How vote about showing up out. to town halls, making calls, all that stuff? Well, voting them out of office has everything to do with that. Uh, you know, it's not merely going to the polls. And I want to say one thing about voting before I go on with that. Um, we had a story recently uh, in the New York Times about the um, uh, four and a half million Obama voters who did not show up for the 2016 election, who didn't go out and vote for Clinton, and who made a huge difference, perhaps a, a crucial difference in that. Now, um, the thing about not voting is that there is no such thing. Everyone who's eligible to vote votes. The only question is whether they do it at the polls or they do it by staying home. Because when you stay home, you're voting for the other side. When you go to the polls, you're voting for the people you believe in. When you stay home, you're effectively voting against what you believe in. Uh, you're voting, if you don't go and, and vote uh, for Clinton in 2016, you're voting for Trump. Uh, if you vote for a third party, you vote for Jill Stein, you're voting for Trump. And that's an extremely important thing to understand about politics. You know, not voting is voting for the other side. So that is crucial. Now, about voting people out of office, it's not just that you cast the votes. You also have to make sure that um, uh, people generally understand this. You have to have write letters to the editor. So you change public discourse. You have to go to town halls and speak up so that people change their, their ideas, so that other people in the town halls will get to hear what you have to say. You have to talk to your neighbors so that your neighbors understand what you have to say. That is, you have to be communicating. Communication by 
people in the public is absolutely essential to having a democracy. Our next question is from Eric Dossie. Eric asks, do you worry the excessive use of extreme language by some on the far left is lessening its overall impact? For example, the constant use of the word fascist. This is a tricky question for a number of reasons. There, You have an alternative, and if you say the alternative is authoritarian, it's not really enough because authoritarian doesn't get at things like uh, sexism and racism and homophobia and those aspects of things. Uh, it doesn't get at uh, being uh, prejudiced against Muslims or uh, you know not letting immigrants in. Uh, authoritarian does get a lot of what the, is going on in the Trump administration. That is to have some absolute authority that's there, but it misses a point. Uh, fascism, fascism goes a bit overboard because in fascism you also have uh, that authoritarian government running the corporations, running the businesses. We don't have that here uh, yet, although there is you know, collusion, that is, you have uh, the government trying to uh, work with businesses to get them to make more money and to get support from business. But the fact is it's not fascist yet. So there isn't a simple term. What about the the Nazism we do see proudly on display? I mean, you know, I think maybe Eric's referring to Antifa's approach, but I don't think Antifa really uh, represents most Democrats or progressives. It's a, it's a pretty small portion of that. But they're a reaction to these people who have taken to marching around with swastikas, with Hitler haircuts, with Confederate flags, uh, the people like the Richard Spencers of the world, people who give Nazi salutes, who use the word hail hailed Trump in one of Richard Spencer's speeches. So the right wing, the extreme right wing, has been deliberately manipulating the symbols of Nazism and fascism to, and getting a rise out of the other side in that, in that way. That's, but, that's why this is a tricky issue. Yeah. Because, well, that is all true. Those elements of fascism are there. The more extreme parts where you uh, run all the companies mm -hmm. is not there. Uh, authoritarianism doesn't cover it. We don't have a word that just does it. But, you know, there's a reason with Antifa to say, hey, these, these are fascist elements, crucial fascist elements, but not the total fascism. So the idea of using fascist uh, as a simplistic term isn't there, but there are contexts where, you know, it seems appropriate, just as you said, when you're, you're um, saying, oh, there are lots of good folks among those neo-Nazis. Mm -hmm. Well, in a way, thinking politically here, shouldn't we just do, be doing our best to ascribe all of these um, awful, ugly features of the current conservative ideology to the label Republican? This is really important. Um, the label Republican is seen as a as an almost neutral label, you know, just as being a Democrat is that is it's respectable. Being a Republican is yeah, respectable. I, I know someone who moved to California, before she moved to California, uh, worked for um, Governor Pataki in New York, who was a Republican. And she said, look, Go Governor Pataki was a very respectable person. You know, Governor Pataki would never say the things that Trump said. He didn't do the most horrible things that Trump did. He was a Republican. He carried out largely Republican, uh, at least economic policies. 
but uh, you know, it was perfectly respectable and is for most people to be a Republican. To say you're a Republican doesn't mean that you're a fascist. Even though when you vote Republican, you vote for people who are supporting fascist tendencies. Now, this is very tricky because uh, the, if, you, if you say that someone is a, is a registered member of a party, that doesn't mean they agree with everything in the party. So that is what makes it respectable. On the other hand, when the only people you're able to vote for, that is when the Republican Party became super conservative under Newt Gingrich uh, back in 1994, when, when the um, moderate Republicans were, um, you know, voted out pretty much uh, in the primary, Republican primaries, uh, what happened was that the uh, respectable Republicans as candidates weren't there. You've got Republicans in office carrying out uh, policies that look in many cases like fascist policies, uh, you know, not fully, but partly, and that go even beyond authoritarianism. So this is a very tricky thing. We don't have good words for it. To say we're gonna just call uh, everybody who believes in uh, the uh, strict father morality down to uh, being a white nationalist, a Republican, is missing the ordinary definition of Republican. Most people, when they say Republican, don't mean that. Well, do you think that's changing? Do you think that the brand damage that Donald Trump is doing to the Republican Party is something that is significant and shouldn't uh, the Republicans who are giving Trump a pass and aiding and abetting him in these efforts be held accountable for everything he does? I mean, it is politics where it's one party versus the other, right? Uh, what you have is <clears throat> an interesting situation where the Republicans are supporting ultra-conservative candidates. And uh, a lot of people don't want that to happen. Uh, you know, uh, as you saw in the uh, election of Connor Lamb versus Sacconi. Uh That is important uh, that uh, they had an ultra-conservative an ultra candidate and a Democrat who was not completely liberal by any means, who had certain conservative poli policies, who was biconceptual. And, um, and he was running in a district that had voted 20% for Trump. That was a very conservative district. Uh, those folks in that district are biconceptual in certain ways, but not liberal, not totally liberal by any means. And here is where you see biconceptualism showing up. They're for unions. They're for this. They're steel workers in that district. For health care for their for neighbors. And therefore, there is for unions and for health care and for decent wages and decent uh, working conditions and so on. And that mattered. Uh, it mattered a great deal. They were not, you know, for the steel companies. And uh, so this is, uh, you know, though, uh, you know, uh, Trump went there and say he was supporting the steel workers because he was supporting the steel companies. The people in the unions uh, understood that that was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Connor Lamb? Is that an example for how Democrats should run in deep red conservative districts? I have very mixed feelings about Connor Lamb. Uh, but I think the fact is that uh, very often you don't want to kill the good for the sake of the perfect. 
uh, Connerland may have been <clears throat> the best you could get in that district. And that is a pragmatic issue. Do you want to have Democrats who are the best you can get, who may not be supporting, uh, may not vote for, um, uh, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi to be um, head of the party, uh, but um, their vote is one vote. Uh, the liberals will will reelect re Nancy, and and that's okay. The point is that they're going to line up with the Democrats on most issues. They're going to vote with the Democrats on most issues, not on all. There are two or three where they won't. Uh, they'll be like certain kinds of blue dog Democrats. But better to have that than to have them be Sicone uh, Republicans, total Republicans. And especially if that's the best kind of Democrat you can get. The guy won by 627 votes. You know, uh, you're not going to get a more liberal Democrat uh, winning uh, even by that many votes. Yeah, and the morale boost there for the Democratic Party to take this victory in a in a district that Trump won by a large margin is very valuable. And it seems to connect back to something we talked about earlier. Republicans have this idea that preserving conservative authority is the most important thing there is. But it seems like Democrats don't always have the same idea. You see that with the uh, Hillary versus Bernie, Bernie versus Hillary split, where people would rather throw away their vote or take away their toys and not participate anymore because their candidate didn't win. It seems like lately, at least in the last election, there's still some bitter divisions and people don't get this, uh, don't have this instinct to immediately line up together on the Democratic side against the bigger threat, the way that Republicans tend to just line up behind whoever their candidate is who's going to uphold the conservative ideas, maybe not all of them, but many or most of them. Exactly. Um, you get a lot of, uh, not a lot, but uh, enough uh, disruptive voters, let's put it that way, who will say, uh, I'm only going to vote for people who uh, believe what I believe on what on my most important issues, and uh, I'm not going to vote for anybody else, uh, even if it means uh, electing a dictator. I mean, that is crazy. You know, that isn't the way that uh, the democratic system has been set up. You know, you do vote for um, the lesser of evils. You, do, you don't throw away the good in order to get the perfect. And it's sad that that's the case. You'd like the perfect. I would like the perfect. I would like every Democrat to believe all the things I believe, and they don't. And that's okay. It's okay because I understand how a two-party system works. I understand how elections work. And uh, you don't want to throw away the good for the perfect. Maybe. Because the perfect is probably not going to happen. And maybe Trump will help more people understand that this painful era we're living through. I do think, though, kind of to, to connect back to a lot of your writing, we fight for the perfect in order to make the good possible. Right. That doesn't mean we don't fight for the perfect, what we consider the best values, the highest values. But we can't just quit the game in the middle of it. We can't just kind of walk away from the democratic process and from making progress because our candidate didn't win. That That's just an – I would call it an immature way to play the game. And it just makes us really vulnerable to Republican victories because they do band together. Right. And, and they, they stay together like a family. They don't they don't divorce the sides um, and go off in their separate directions because they have a look at how many Republicans were opposed to Trump and then just got in line immediately once he became the nominee. 
Yeah, because he gave them what most conserv what most conservatives want. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, something extremely important to understand. Uh, you know, the Democrats, um, you know, correctly, who are people who are pro uh, strong progressive Democrats, have progressive ideas, uh, which you know uh, I might or might not agree with in detail, but I probably would. And the idea there is, uh, you know, you want to maximize those. There's a difference between maximizing them and getting them all perfectly. And you minimize them or don't get any of them when you uh, get a Trump in there or get a Trump supporter uh, being elected. That is, you're not going to maximize what you want. And that is how democracies work. Democracies are set up in, in exactly a way so that you can, you know, the people you vote for are going to maximize what you want, but not give you everything you want, because that's not possible when you have uh, elections with millions of people. Our next question comes from Zoe Coombs. Zoe had many, many amazing questions. We could do a whole podcast episode just on questions from Zoe. Um, and her question was, could you talk about boys so much of the strict father morality seems connected to our traditional ideas of gender, leaving boys in nurturing societies in a sticky place. They become the bad morality we want to shift away from, limiting their models rather than opening them as girls have experienced over the last 40 years. Also, symbolism. If a fat, quixotic, red-faced man is perfect shorthand for strict father populism, what's the shorthand for nurturing politics? Must it be a woman? If so, what is she like? Who is the nurturing man? Dad in a lumberjack shirt with a baby carrier strapped to his chest at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday? Uh, it's funny. I think I saw that guy at the coffee shop this morning here yes. in Oakland. Um, so I, a lot saw, of, there's a I few saw questions one in there. the doctor's office this morning. <laughs> a lot of questions packed into there. But what about this main question about what we teach boys in our society and how that leads maybe to strict father over nurturant parent? Uh, there was uh, a really interesting op-ed by Ian Black in the New York Times on just this issue. And um, it has to do with teaching boys nurturance and care, uh, that they're not just supposed to be macho. They're not just supposed to win all the time. That is, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, Barack Obama, in his Father's Day speech in 2008, went to a, an African-American church in Chicago, and he addressed young men who had fathered children but didn't get married and weren't raising the children. And he said in that speech, if you are one of these men, you're not a man. You're not a real man. A real man is a man who understands what it is to take care of children, to read to them at night, to put them to get to, to bed, to take care of them, whether they're boys or girls, doesn't matter. But to actually, and, and if you have father children and you have uh, their mother take, raising them now, respect the mother and listen to what she says. Don't try to tell the mother what to do and she knows better about raising children. And one of the things you have to do in raising children, if you're a real man, is to understand them, to have empathy for them, to put yourself in their shoes, in the way that they are being brought up, and to teach them to have empathy for everyone else. Because if you don't do that, we're going to have a generation of people who don't care about anybody. 
those are very wise words that Obama spoke, and they have to do with the idea of what it means to be a nurturant father. I had a nurturant father. Uh, I raised my son. My son is a nurturant father. Uh, I hope I was. And the idea is that you uh, teach your child to care about other people. You teach your child what their effects are on other people. You teach your child to be responsible for yourself and others. To be responsible for yourself and others. You have to teach responsibility because you can't take care of anybody if you're not responsible for yourself. And, but both of those things are important. You teach responsibility uh, for things that you undertake. If you make commitments, you carry those commitments out. Uh, you know, it's not that you just let kids grow up and do anything they want, quite the opposite. What you do is you point out what it is to care and you set an example. The example that a nurturant father sets is the example of being a nurturant person, of being a person who is both caring and responsible and protective. What about this idea of the symbolism? Uh, is a strict father always a, a fat guy with a, a red face? Um, and is a, a woman always nurturant? I think there are no. multiple models of all kinds, right? Right. I mean, there are lots and lots of strict mothers out there. Uh, you know, think of uh, <laughs> you know, Barbara Bush. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, lots of strict mothers out there in the world. And uh, there are um, uh, lots of... Um, you know, nurturing fathers. They're there of all kinds. You don't have to, you know, uh, you know, be an outdoorsman mm -hmm. to be a nurturing father. Uh, you know, you don't have to be uh, red-faced uh, to, to be a strict father. You know, all kinds of people in terms of their physical appearance can do, do both. Mm -hmm. The question is how you act. Yeah, and I think it, one of the examples that comes to mind to me is uh, a, a firefighter climbing a tree to rescue a cat, right? Like there's a, a nurturant, a, a firefighter, maybe somebody who is physically strong, who is um, in some ways conservative or may seem that way, but their job is to care about other people. Their job is to risk their life, to go into a burning building, to climb up a tree, to rescue a strand, stranded animal. And so it doesn't necessarily apply that the visual look of somebody uh, tells you whether they're nurturant or, or strict. Um, I mean, I myself grew up with a, a kind of a strict mother figure for part of my childhood, you know, so very uh, small, not physically big woman who was a very strict, strict mother uh, figure. And, and so you, it's not really a physical thing. It's about the ideas. I think it, that, that's what you're saying. It's about the ideas you're carrying out and teaching your children or, you know, whether you go through life caring about others and, and helping or whether everything is um, mm -hmm. handled according to the strict father hierarchy where you're personally responsible for things and should be punished if you do wrong and uh, may get ahead if you do what the strict parent says. You know, I guess that it's not necessarily mother and father. It, it traditionally plays out like that in families, but strict versus nurturant are the more important concepts. That's right. And, you know, it, you can have nurturing fathers and strict mothers. Uh, it is not a gender issue. Uh, it is a question of behavior, of how you treat other people, how you treat your children, and how you raise your children to treat others. And definitions of gender are, are changing, right? Our social understanding of these things. I think when I think of the Me Too movement, um, I think of how 
the understanding of how men are to behave toward others is radically shifting in a short period of time and how certain behaviors um, will no longer be silently tolerated as they have been in past generations. So I do think that there is there is a, a lot of shift taking place. You know, we now have um, a much wider recognition for uh, transgender um, citizens mm-hmm. here. You know, it's no longer something that people have to hide or be ashamed of. People can be free to be who they are. So I think a lot of these things are these concepts of gender um, and power in gender relationships are being challenged at this time. Absolutely. And it's a very good thing. Our next question comes from Brian Maron. A common frame that irritates me is when people are pushing a false choice between socialism and capitalism. How would you reframe this? We've always had a mixed system in America. Its versatility has been its strength. We can adjust it with more protections when necessary and so on. I guess you can take it from there, George. Well, uh, I would take it from our Constitution. In the preamble, it says... We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, uh, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, if you go through that list, uh, uh, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty, etc. That includes uh, all sorts of things. It includes, for example, uh, public resources, resources that everyone needs, that is, uh, providing for um, the blessings of liberty and so on. Providing for the common defense is required to have both a capitalist uh, society and, uh, you know, a a society that is uh, less like uh, extreme capitalism. Uh, And the idea that this is just a mixture between socialism and capitalism, that is laissez-faire capitalism, total capitalism, is a a misunderstanding too. you know, socialism is not, he says, you have a planned economy. Uh, the United States did not have a totally planned economy, but it does have plans for taking care of its people uh, and, you know, ensuring domestic tranquility and so on, uh, making sure everybody is treated equally. That is, it does have ideas for uh, uh, what we have called uh, of by, uh, government of, by, and for the people. Yes, there are plans for that. Uh, That doesn't mean you have a centrally planned economy, but it does mean you have a centrally planned structure for carrying that out. Uh, That is not socialism completely by any means. It has elements of it, but it's not a mixed system that is part socialist completely and part capitalist. Laissez-faire capitalism says that uh, you don't ever have corporate responsibility or care for anybody. That is, co- companies are supposed to be able to do anything they want, including harming harming people. No, that's not part of the Constitution. That doesn't, uh, you know, uh, provide for the blessings of liberty to ourselves. Uh, you know, our Constitution says something very different. And it provides for the idea of capitalism. That is, you have a capitalism that is responsible to people, that is limited by all sorts of 
what are called protections or sometimes called regulations, but they are laws that guarantee public protection, uh, keep, keeping corporations from going too far and from harming people. Uh, that is uh, a system that is complex. It is not just a mixture of socialism and capitalism. And if you take uh, a look at Robert Reich's book, Saving Capitalism, what he's saying is that capitalism, in terms of uh, making money through business, through selling products and making profits, uh, it really requires uh, considering the common good. That is, having corporations that are responsible to their employees, that have reasonable wages, reasonable working conditions, that are responsible to their communities, that don't ruin their communities or pollute their communities, and that are responsible to the public in general and to the environment. Uh, those responsibilities are consistent with making a, profit, making a profit in a business where you produce products and sell things if you do it right, if you are serious about um, having a corporation uh, in, a co in a country that, where people work for the common good. So that is not a mixed system per se. It is an American system. It has been in America since the country was started, as we pointed out. From the very beginning, we had roads and bridges for companies. We had interstate commerce. We had, uh, you know, uh, a justice department for corporate law. Uh, you know, we had all sorts of things for corporations, but also public education and public health, and all sorts of things, including science and technology, for the for the the benefit of private individuals. And I believe the original idea for the corporate charter included caring about the public good and that being a factor. But in the modern day interpretation, the idea is that the only responsibility is a fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible, uh, uh, disregarding any other concerns. And that wasn't always the case. And I think that comes down to, especially in a book like Saving Capitalism, um, the, this, this big tension between the progressive thought and conservative thought being the, the public and the common good um, versus complete private greed and corporate gain. A study of corporate charters, if you go through the various states that charter corporations, uh, mo and mostly say that the corporations are there for the public good. That's why we have them. Uh, it's not true in all states, but it's true in you know a great many of them. There are studies of corporate charters, and in most cases they are supposed to be serving the common good. That's why we have corporations. That's why we allow them. That's right. why we allow them. That's the idea. It's not both allow and have. That is, it says very often to serve the common good, you need to have a group of people working together uh, as in a corporation. So uh, that admits it. And remember that um, America was founded by a corporation, <laughs> namely uh, the corporation that came over from England, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Company. Next question is from Maxine Shear. I think this will be our last question. How can the public better communicate with the mainstream media and encourage reframing? That's an easy one, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> uh, it's very difficult. So I, th I think it's important to understand 
why that question has to be asked and why it's a very important and crucial question. It has to be asked because people who are in the mainstream media have gone through a training and are in a system that goes against all the things that that question requires. It goes against understanding what is going on right now in politics. Uh, it goes against uh, understanding how framing works. Uh, and it goes against all sorts of things. For example, in there, if you are going to journalism school, you are taught to report who, what, when, why. Okay? As if everything were literal, as if there were no frames, because framing is not just literal. You use metaphorical thought constantly. And in fact, the um, strict father and nurturing parent paradigms for our politics are based on uh, the idea that the nation is a family. So uh, you have metaphorical thought centrally throughout our politics, and there, it is based on the idea that language is neutral, that you can just report on, reporting on people's language means you're reporting on something neutral. So when a reporter interviews someone, they're expected to just say what the language is, not what they mean by what the language is. But of course, what they mean by it is absolutely crucial. Yeah, I know. I have some personal experience with this in, in several ways. First, I started my career as a reporter and a journalist. And during that time, I really had no idea how framing or messaging worked or how propaganda tactics work when they're applied by political professionals. And it was only later, once I left journalism and went to work in government as a communications officer, that I became very aware of how much work is put into exactly what you say in the media. Uh, you know, you carefully craft messages to convey very specific ideas. And by and large, those very carefully crafted messages are accepted and repeated throughout the media if you do it well. And so that's an awareness I don't think a lot of reporters have. I also think that in this modern day of digital media and the need for virality and clicks, um, what ends up being most repeated is what seems most interesting. And what is most interesting when the government is speaking to reporters is what is made most interesting by, by design, by conscious design. And so when Trump says something outrageous and outlandish or when um, you know the government announces something crazy they're going to do that day that, that, that gets all of the attention and sucks all of the energy out of the room, um, when people are repeating strange phrases like, enhanced interrogation techniques, which actually means brutal torture, then you can see that the media is just kind of accepting hook, line, and sinker by design what they're being spoon-fed by government uh, communications propaganda agents, essentially. And it's really hard to disabuse people of this notion when their entire existence and paycheck depends on them getting the most clicks, you know, getting... Um, the story out there, getting an exclusive, meaning that you're sharing first exactly what somebody who works for the government wants you to share and in the way they want it shared. So I do think that it's kind of a built-in problem in, in journalism. Um, and it's not clear how you solve it because I think a lot of reporters don't like to think of themselves as people who are ignorant of a very big part of communications. You know? Well, uh, you raise a, a, a crucial question. Let's take uh, the issue of in, uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. 
since we have a uh, new nominee for head of the CIA who uh, ran a torture operation in Thailand. Now, uh, enhanced uh, interrogation technique sounds like we're just doing better interrogation, not we're like we're doing br brutal torture, which is what it really means. But uh, what you're expected to do as a reporter is to report on the words said. That is, you report on what is said by the person you interview. Now, what often reporters who are responsible will do, given that they have to meet that, is that they'll then interview someone else who, has, who understands what that phrase really means and will say it. And then they have another person uh, for to be fair and balanced in their coverage, uh, who will say, no, uh, that is a matter of brutal torture, and we are getting a torturer who is not only inhuman, uh, but violates uh, American law and international law to be head of the CIA. We shouldn't do that. You have to, so the way that this is done in reporting is to report on uh, the, you know, the balance between two sides. That is two points of view. That's one way that reporters who can keep to that standard will do it, because reporters by themselves are not supposed to be giving their own opinion, but can perfectly well ask someone who has an opposite opinion. Yeah, but when they use a phrase like enhanced interrogation techniques, and they don't put it in quotation marks, and they don't immediately balance it out by saying, also known as brutal torture, they are privileging the lie, the lie that the government has created for the purpose of framing a very immoral and illegal act as something benign, palatable, and effective. That's exactly correct. And it's not just that kind of phrase. It is all sorts of things every day in, in political reporting. And uh, most reporters don't do that. They're not supposed to. They're trained not to do that. They're trained not to say what is really meant. Now, if you're going to try to change that, you need a very different understanding of reporting and of who the reporters are. And it'll be very important that reporters be able to do that. However, once you uh, then take someone's words and say what you mean by it, you get uh, you know, a right-wing version of this as in Breitbart News. Uh, you know, and you're gonna get, uh, of course, uh, Fox News and Breitbart versions of this. Yeah. But it just seems that it's one thing to keep that kind of thinking in, in their own news stream in a Fox News or in a Breitbart. But when you see the Atlantic Monthly saying enhanced interrogation techniques um, without immediately explaining that it's brutal torture, when you see them accepting the lie and spreading it, that just shows you the power of government framing when it becomes the normal thing you call it. And when that term first popped up, it sounded like something straight out of or Orwell. You know, that's not a normal phrase we'd ever heard before. No one uses that kind of language. That is language that is designed to obscure the reality of what you're talking about. And so I do think that I think some reporters can get it. I think we saw with the campaign we were on to make people aware of Trump's tweets and how he used them. You know, later you see people like Ezra Klein at Vox um, saying the same thing, not saying that we said it first, but that's not the point. The point is that people started to see that whenever Trump's in trouble, he tweets. So I think slowly but surely, 
you start to see an effect and reporters start to understand if they hear from enough people, if they hear from enough readers, that they need to put a little bit more caution and care and understanding into how language is being used and into how the processes of journalism are being manipulated knowingly by people in government or politics to spread false information and false and spread uh, frames that benefit the side of the people who are not acting in the common good. And um, so I'd say tweet at reporters, email them, send letters to the editor, express what you think should be done instead of what they're doing, encourage them to do more and to do better. Um, I do think there's some resistance to that. People will fight you back. But if you can get into their brain the idea that there's somewhere they should look, and if you're polite about it and you express your appreciation for the work they do, because reporters do do important work, I think there's a way to, to break through. I think we've certainly seen that to some degree. It doesn't happen immediately, but it also doesn't happen if we don't try. Well, it doesn't happen if we don't try, but the resistance comes from what the reporters themselves have been trained to do and what they see themselves see their job as being and you have to say to say hey in those tweets in those letters uh, in those letters to the editor uh, as you respect reporters and we need them desperately we need good reporters and there are a lot of good ones out there a lot of terrific ones out there uh, you know you need to be able to say uh, what it means to frame things you know, the when I read the New York Times uh, on their front page interviewing uh, CEOs of corporations about how wonderful it is that uh, they've gotten rid of regulations and never mention that those regulations are there for protection, you know, that's exactly the same thing. It's not quite as, uh, you know, well, it's, I'd say it's, it's almost as morally abhorrent as advanced interrogation techniques. Uh, enhanced. Enhanced. Very enhanced. Also advanced. Advanced. Also brutal torture. And brutal torture. That is to not say protections when you mean when you hear mean say regulations is like not saying brutal torture when you say enhanced uh, interrogation techniques. And the problem is there is that the problem there is that you're not telling the truth when you use the label that expresses the lie. Well, there's a very interesting point here about the nature of truth. Uh, regulations and protections are uh, one of many cases where there are different points of view, the point of view of the powerful and the point of view of those under their power, the powerless. And it's important when there are such different points of view to at least say what those points of view are and why they're there. That's all for this week. Uh, we'll see you all next time.